Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Basement Podcast. <laughs> Reaper Tales. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I got it mixed up. I'm recording from my basement of my new home. If you hear barking in the background, it should be faint because they're upstairs. Yeah. But you but you might hear it because I you might hear it. <laughs> I had to get away from them because my dogs are not taking the move very well. And so every time I leave their sight. They lose it. <laughs> uh, and we're recording this the day before, the night before it's released. So you're welcome. Yeah. Last minute. Last minute recording. Yay. So what are we recording, Samantha? Today, we're talking about uh, claustrophobic situations, I guess. That's how we would term yeah. it. Um, if, if you have a fear of enclosed places, these, these might freak you out a little bit. Um, or in my case, just a very deep place, um, but still counts. So anyway, we'll each have our own case. Cause that's right. You're going to hear from both of us today. Samantha so kind of mixed it up. Yeah. Well, Samantha, what she's not saying is she was kind enough to do a joint episode with me because I am. Uh, overworked right now. <laughs> I'm a, moving <laughs> while trying to record a podcast is challenging at best. And I have a full-time job. Yeah, that too. So also enjoy the background ambiance of my dog losing. They have been quiet all, the entire time we've been sitting here and we do like the pre-recording conversations, nothing. As soon as she hits the start button, constant barking so yeah. we tried yeah. and we i definitely tried we tested it out we were like oh they're not doing anything perfect let's go ahead and start second <laughs> we hit start she loses it i wonder well i would say i wonder if she heard your voice that's definitely not a not a response because she's deaf <laughs> yeah she's deaf she can't hear me <laughs> oh bless well it's probably tugger at the back one of the back doors looking for uh squirrels so yeah. it is what it is. All right. So I think I'm going, oh, well, what are we drinking? Uh, me. I am drinking, <laughs> I'm drinking a uh, Yingling, um, which is the theme. It's a beer. It's a Yingling beer. It's the theme to my week because I had friends come over and help me move. And our beer of choice is Yingling when we all hang out. And so I made sure I had a ton of it. And I didn't want to go to the store and get anything else or try and unbury my liquor. So, Yingling yeah. is, it is. If you're not drinking Yingling, start drinking Yingling. Samantha <laughs> is drinking water. I am drinking water because uh, I did not have noticed that it was going to be a, a theme. Had I, I might have picked some, some up, but that's okay. You also have a date after this i do have so a date you will be drinking there <laughs> i will more than likely so i gotta keep my wits about me for this podcast i mean hopefully, you know. I'll, hopefully i'll make it um more than you know maybe two hours but i am getting old so i don't make it out i don't stay out too late anymore i can't do it yeah true mm -hmm. all right so i think i'm kicking this bad boy off 
You are. I think I, I, think I yelled at the dogs enough, listeners. Uh, we paused for a minute to see if I could get them to be quiet. They're just having a party up there. Um, so I'm, my claustrophobia story is, um, I was going to do a different case and then I stumbled across this one. And so it is about a, actually, I'm just going to tell you the story and you can, you can, you can figure out where the claustrophobia comes in. How about that? Fair enough. All right, so Joshua Vernon Maddox lived in Woodland Park, Colorado, with his father, Mike, and two sisters, Kate and Ruth. His parents were divorced, and at six feet tall, he had long blonde hair and weighed around 150 pounds. He loved music and spent a lot of time playing the guitar and writing music. Wait, did you say six foot tall? He weighed 150 pounds? Yeah, he was a beanpole. Man. (laughs) Okay. On June 1st, 2006, Josh's brother, Zachary, died by suicide. He was just one week away from graduating high school. Zachary's death was difficult for Josh, but he seemed to be doing well and was happy and was happy around uh, 2008 when... Two years after his brother's death, Josh himself disappeared. On May 8th, 2008, Josh left the house telling his sister Kate that he was going out for a walk. He often went out hiking alone. So when his sister saw him at the house before he left, she thought little of it. But when he failed to return later that evening, the family became worried. On May 13th, Five days after he disappeared, his father, Mike, called the police to report Josh missing. Five days? Okay. Mike said, I got up one morning and Josh was there. Then he just never came home. The next day, he still didn't come home. I called his friends. Nobody had seen him. Nobody knows where he is. Police, friends, and family searched the neighborhood and nearby parkland area where Josh may have gone on his walk. They searched for months with no results. Josh's sister, Kate, the older one, hoped that he had just left town to go and play music or start a new life. I thought maybe, like, maybe that was why his dad didn't call sooner. Yeah, but it, I mean, he's like, hey, I'm going for a walk. And then you don't see him and you're like, ah, he probably went somewhere else. I don't know. That just seems like a odd thing. But maybe, you know, sometimes you convince yourself of the normalcy of the situation and and that the bad thing that's in your subconscious didn't actually happen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I thought it was a little bit weird, too, to wait five days. But again, I've never been put in that situation. Though I can tell you, Samantha, if you do not respond to my text messages within five hours, you bet your sweet ass I'm going to be calling Paul. I'm going to be calling Mm -hmm. the police. I'm going to call your sister. I'm going to call whoever I have to call to see where you're at. But I'm paranoid. True. All that is very true. Yeah. (laughs) There's something wrong inside of my head. Hey, at least it's good to know that if, if I'm 
missing, you'll discover it fairly quickly. I hope so. The police listed him as a missing person and the case grew cold. Fast forward seven years in 2015, a builder from Colorado Springs by the name of Chuck Murphy, who was 80 years old, was demolishing his old wooden cabin. On Meadow Lark Lane, which was basically in the woods. The cabin happened... The cabin hadn't been used for a decade and had fallen into disrepair. Chuck made the decision to demo the cabin so property development could begin in that area. Chuck's brother had lived in the cabin until 2005, but since moving out, it had become a storage facility and it had been rarely visited. In August of 2015, demolition began on the cabin. While dismantling the chimney, Chuck made a gruesome discovery. A body of a young man was cramped into a fetal position with his legs above his head. With dental records, the body was identified as Joshua Maddox. Teller County Coroner Al Bourne did an autopsy and found no evidence of drugs in Joshua's remains. There was no signs of trauma, broken bones, knife marks, or bullet holes. Coroner Bourne could only speculate on the cause of death. Could it be dehydration or maybe it was hypothermia? That position, though, just sounds very odd doesn't it It especially to not i mean it almost sounds like he fell but if he doesn't have anything broken then that kind of doesn't seem like that makes sense either so here's where i want to kind of explain the way people dying in chimneys normally works to our listeners and to you samantha if you may not be aware of it i've not researched it so no i'm not aware (laughs) For the majority of cases uh, of people who are trapped in chimneys, I mean, you're going to get your random people who do die of hunger in chimneys. You're going to get people who I've seen a couple of cases where people um, died from the fire being lit below them. Yeah. But those are very rare. The majority of cases of people being trapped in these chimneys, they're dying of asphyxiation. Right. Of manual asphyxiation. Because the way a chimney works is, think of a funnel. Mm-hmm. A chimney is very is decently wide at the top. And normally, if a person is going to try and break into a house through a chimney, they're going to go feet first. You're never going to go head first. Let's make that clear. There's no reason for you to ever go face first down a chimney. So you're going to go. I wouldn't think most people would even want to attempt that. Exactly. You're not going to dive (laughs) down. So you're going to go feet first. Now, a lot of these cases, those people who have gone down chimneys don't have a donk like I do. And so they're able to get down pretty far into these chimneys. The problem is they'll get down far enough and they'll realize that their arms that are beside them are hindering them from going farther. So they will intentionally 
put their arms above their heads. Yeah, to... but that but you can't breathe when your arms are above. Yeah. That, that, that that's going to cause problems with breathing. Then what happens is that person does slip farther down and they probably think, "Yay, I'm getting farther down this chimney." But what happens is the bottom of a chimney is so narrow, your your rib cage cannot go through it. So typically what people in that situation will do is they will exhale all of their breath so that their chest isn't as wide and they'll mm-hmm. scoot down even farther. But what this does is it makes it where they can't draw a, a full breath. Only little gasps of breath. And so they effectively suffocate themselves to death. Well, you described that very poetically. You're welcome. I, I'll never try to go down a chimney if that was your goal. It, it was my goal. Don't ever go down a <laughs> chimney. Now, in this case, um, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I'm going to spoil it for you. This is not how he dies. Okay. We, we don't know how he dies. But with the position of his but body. that ain't it. But that ain't it. But okay. I, I did want to bring that up because it is claustrophobia crimes. And I was originally going to do a case where a woman died that way. And I will do it in the future. But I came across this case and I was like, this is super interesting. I'm going to put it on here. Still claustrophobic because he ended up in a chimney. I follow mm-hmm. the rules. You know, this is actually kind of weird because you don't know what I'm covering. I did the same thing. Oh, you did? <laughs> so <laughs> We're the same people. <laughs> anyway, keep going. So, all right. So on September, um, oh, wait, 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 wait. All right. Yeah. All right. I'm right here. Uh, on September 28th, 2015, Coroner Bourne made a ruling of accidental death. He speculated that Josh had climbed into the chimney and become and became stuck in the brickwork. Bourne stated that Josh's position in the chimney appeared to have been a voluntary act in order to gain access. He concluded that most likely cause of death was hypothermia hypothermia as the temperatures around the time of his disappearance between may 8th and 10th 2008 had dropped to the highs of the 20s in fahrenheit 6.7 degrees negative 6.7 degrees celsius for anyone listening outside of the demo usa for all the other places For using the, the metric places. system <laughs> and using Celsius. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so case is closed, right? Accidentally. No, no definitely not. Wrong, literally wrong. I hope not. <laughs> there were a few concerning questions surrounding the case. For one, there was a fitted heavy wire gate grate over the top of the chimney. Which would allow in, which wouldn't allow entrance from the top of the chimney. Right, you do that to keep animals out of it. That's right. These were used to keep animals out of chimneys. 
Thanks for taking the words right out of my notes. <laughs> you do it to me often enough. I know. <laughs> Just get a little taste of my own medicine. <laughs> uh, the grate was actually installed into the bricks one row down from the top. So you couldn't just remove it yourself. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like a fitting over the top of it. It right. was fitted into the chimney one layer of bricks below. So you could maybe put your foot on top of it and have a foot in the chimney, but the grate would stop you. Yeah. Um, Which makes sense because there's no real reason why you would ever need to remove that from a chimney. So, yeah. There is absolutely no reason to remove it. Uh, da, 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 da. So it was still there, obviously, Well, when he, they started dismantling it. Here's the thing. Coroner Bourne explained that the grate could have been rusted or corroded. He also stated that no one saw the metal grate in any of the photos. Chuck Murphy's response to this was that during the demolition, all metalwork had been collected and taken for scrap, which yeah, would explain why the mesh was not clearly identified by the coroner as it wasn't anywhere near the chimney. And they wouldn't have thought to bring it back out when everything was going on. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's it's, it's near the top. So that's one of the first things to go. Yeah. And a quote from... Um, Chuck Murphy, who is the owner of the house, said, and Chuck is actually, he's he's a big, like, advocate for saying, like, this is not an accidental death. Even though it's his house and it benefits him more to say it's an accidental death, he has been very vocal in saying, this isn't an accident. Something happened to this man, boy, 18 years old, whatever. Uh, which may, leads me to believe more that it wasn't an accident but we'll go over that and what we think um conceding to uh oh, oh so sorry so this is a quote from um chuck murphy they were just gathering up all of the steel angle iron and things as part of the demolition they had no idea the mesh had any significance so somebody i mean if you're just gathering i I wouldn't know what that looks like. I've seen crews like this and you've got, you have certain people that are doing the demolition work. You have people around typically that are cleaning up afterwards, unless it's a very small group, but this sounds like this was probably a, a bigger group doing it because they were de demolishing the whole thing. So they probably had people doing some of the work of pulling it apart and then other people putting it where it needed to go to keep the space cleared to make it easier to continue to do the demolition work. So left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Like yeah. it makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. Um, so um, coroner Bourne actually listened to Murphy on this and he reopened the case three days after his initial conclusion. It was not only the rebar that caused doubt about the original autopsy, for example, a large wooden breakfast bar that had been torn from a wall in the kitchen and dragged over to the block the chimney from inside the cabin raised further suspicions. So somebody blocked the chimney from inside. Hmm. If the breakfast bar had been torn from the wall, then who had done it and why? 
Josh's body had also been found in a fetal position with his legs above his head and disjointed from his torso. Uh. In order to have gotten in such a position, he would have had to have entered the chimney head first. This was a very unusual position and Bourne had, corner Bourne, had earlier commented that he thought it would have taken two people to position him in such a fashion. So in the way you described the chimney it, with it being so small at the the base, I guess, right? So majority of modern chimneys are like that. Even even like older chimneys. However, this was a cabin and the chimney from my understanding was built man built Ah, okay. So it was probably straight up and down for the so, most part. Yeah, I believe this one was straight up and down. It might okay. have had some taper at the end, but it was it, it wasn't as tapered as like your your standard chimney that you're going to find in houses. Okay. Today. So what was stranger what was even stranger was that when Josh's body had been found, he was wearing only a thin thermal shirt, and his clothes had been found inside the cabin folded up next to the fireplace okay coroner Bourne said of this evidence this only really taxed our brains we found his clothing just outside the firebox he only had on a thermal t-shirt we don't know why he took his clothes off took his shoes and socks off and why he went outside, climbed on the roof, and went down the chimney. It was not linear thinking. Well, no shit. Neither is your de- your decision on how this happened. That doesn't make any sense. How would that be your assumption? Yeah, it, there's no logic in this is accidental. Like, I... Anyway. The revised autopsy report said the cause of death was an accidental death murder, or undetermined causes. However, Bourne said, we've come up with the most plausible explanation and it will remain an accident. He did come down the chimney. That's our conclusion. Okay. Sure, bro. So, there are some theories on this case. A post on a post on Reddit in 2015 gave a name to the suspect to a suspect. The post said, "I went to high school with this skinny, dorky hippie uh, hippie named Andy who played guitar in a band. I was never good friends with him or anything, but a year or so after I graduated, one of my good friends, Josh, started hanging out with him and then went missing. Turns out that in addition to becoming a lot scarier looking, Andy had indeed headed down to New Mexico, where he found himself shooting the shit with the caretaker of a disabled guy and got invited over to their apartment. The caretaker gets in the shower, and when he comes back out, the disabled guy is stabbed to death, and Andy's gone. 
When Andy got arrested, he also claimed to have killed a woman in Taos and stuffed her body in a barrel. The cops had indeed found a woman stuffed in a barrel in Taos, but already had somebody in custody for it and decided to stick with that guy instead. Years later, I found out that the caretaker had died in a bar fight, and without him, the cops didn't have much in the way of evidence, somehow. So that case against Andy was dropped, too. Several of us went to the cops saying, Yo, Josh, who went missing, was last seen with Andy, who's a murderer. Maybe you should check that out. Despite a fair amount of pestering, nothing ever really came of it. And by nothing, I mean that the police mostly didn't even return our calls and once accidentally canceled the bulletin on Josh because he's alive and well and living in the town, the next town over. Wow. He wasn't. He was actually in the chimney of an abandoned cabin like two blocks from his parents' house. The coroner said the body had been there for about seven years and ruled the death accidental, concluding that Josh had probably climbed down the chimney in an attempt to break into the house and gotten stuck, which given the age of the corpse doesn't seem overly ridiculous. Except for the fact that in addition to Josh having last seen last been seen with Andy immediately before his stabbing spree, people called in to report having heard rumors that Andy was bragging about having put Josh in a hole. Somebody had ripped a heavy bar off of the wall in the kitchen and propped it up against the fireplace. Or the fact that Josh's stuff had already was already inside the cabin, meaning A, He'd already broken in and would have had to lock himself out to have gotten to go for the chimney. And B, he might have noticed that either the flu or the big bar would have prevented him from getting in through the fireplace. Or the fact that when he was found, Josh's knees were above his head. Which sounds to me like he would have had to go in head first. Disclaimer. Not an expert at fucking all. I love this person. Or maybe the fact that Josh was barefoot and naked from the waist down. This is just my opinion, but I don't care who you are. You you don't try to climb headfirst into a chimney via a hole rusted through a metal grate with your dick hanging out. (laughs) As far as I can tell, nobody even bothered to call Andy to ask if he even knew anything. By the way, from what I heard, Andy's still out and about doing his thing when he's not in the mental hospital. Well, okay, that's right. All I'm saying is, I wish they had done some uh, police shed. Open an investigation, try to track down some leads, interview some of the folks who have been calling in tips for the last seven years. Maybe check for some semen or something. I don't know. Don't just, quote-unquote, accidental, dust off your hands and call it a day. Which, I mean, that person's super right. I mean, they made a really good point about not... I don't care who you are. You're not going to go into a chimney, regardless of your ideas of how how well this is going to work. You're not going to go in head first. 
No, you're not going to go in head first and you're not going to go in dick out. No. I'm sorry. No, I, I highly doubt that. Um, in, in the uh, first portion of these theories, the uh, one, it, it says in here, and I forgot to put it in my notes, but it says basically one such su- subject was now incarcerated in Texas jail and had previous time in uh, Seattle and Portland prisons with a long history of violent crimes. One tip-off had informed the police that this man had been seen with Josh. When speaking of the man, Al Bourne, the coroner, said, They can't give me times and specifics and we can't generate stuff that goes back seven years. Bourne also doubted that the man would have been able to have put Josh in the chimney alone. Pretty much saying, like, if this person did it, he would have had to have another person help him do it. Mm -hmm. But somehow Josh did it himself. Right. And secondly, like, I read that, I was reading through this, and I was just like, why is a coroner investigating this? Because a coroner doesn't investigate a crime. A coroner inspects the body. They give a cause of death and a manner of death. This isn't CSI. Yeah. <laughs> and just this through this whole thing, uh, Coroner Bourne has, like, inserted himself into this and said, I don't, the times don't match up. You know, he probably crawled in trying to break in. But that is not your place to say something like that. You inspect no. the body. And you tell us what your findings are. How he died. Was he murdered? Was he, uh, was it um, a death by suicide? Was it, you know, what, what was it? And then how, what was the cause of it? That is all a coroner is supposed to do. And it pissed me off through that entire thing. I was just like, this motherfucker thinks he's, what is happening? I will give an interesting caveat because I did not go over it in the last episode that I did with the Birmingham Axe murders, but actually the coroner that um, did a lot of the, um, I guess, yeah, he was the coroner. He, it was an elected position at that point. Um, but anyway, he actually put together, uh, helped, he was extremely influential in putting together one of the first detective forces in Birmingham because he was looking into this case and he was having all these findings and apparently the detective work wasn't something that they did at the time. So he was the one that put together like a whole group of detectives to actually go into these cases and look at them a little bit deeper. So that was in 1920s. (laughs) I think we've moved past that now. That was in the 1920s. Stay in your, stay in your lane, sir. <laughs> but it was also, it's also like that coroner put together a task force to investigate it. He didn't investigate it himself. No, I think after that, he kind of, I mean, he was a part of it. He obviously he was giving them his findings and stuff, but it didn't sound like he was inserting himself into the investigation. It was just like boggling to me. Like, why is this coroner, why does this coroner he have so many opinions? He's a part-time detective. You don't know. Oh my God. Just whatever. <laughs> so my thoughts on it. 
I, and I've read some, I, I kind of went down a Reddit rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I read it. I enjoy going to Reddit now. Um, one, one theory that popped up to me was that um, Josh may have gone to meet someone there. And it might have been Andy. Uh, both of them played musical instruments. They were very into music. They would have had a lot in common. Maybe a fight broke out between them. Maybe they were having a romantic relationship. I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying, like, these things are possible. Something happened. This is where Andy or whoever it was started their killing and pushed his body up into the chimney. Because if you think about it, it would be easier to push a body from the shoulders up Mm -hmm. and your legs would end up kind of in a fetal position than it would be to push somebody from their legs up. Yeah. So... We're going to have to test out this theory. Samantha, you're going to have to play dead. Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to have to push you into a way. And then he he blocked it with um with that pole. So mm-hmm. the body wouldn't fall out. It does. Conf- the, the clothing confuses me. In, in, in either case. Like, why... Why was he not wearing any? The only thing I can think of is not great things. Um, so I don't. Th- the clothing being inside of the house and then him just having a thermal shirt on, which is very odd. That specific part of it is very odd. Um, but then for him to go outside, climb up on the roof, then dive head first into a chimney just doesn't strike me as. Very likely. Yeah, there's no... Why would you... I mean, I guess if he was hypothermic already when he was inside of the house and it was to the point of impairing his cognitive abilities, maybe. But how likely is that? Yeah, I could see that. Like, he he gets disoriented. When you're hypothermic, you do tend to take off all your clothes. Well, it doesn't... I think I listened to a case. It's like... uh, 40% 40% of the time people do that, they that they get to that point that they'll take off their clothes because they actually feel hot instead of cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not all the time, but it is something that happens. So that could justify it. But then I still don't really understand why he would still be wearing the thermal. But again, if your mental capacity is impaired, then... You know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what happens... In people's brains in hypothermic states. He wasn't on drugs. He wasn't on alcohol. My my thing is that I I trust um, Chuck when he says that that grate was up there. So even if he mm-hmm. did take off all his clothes, he goes outside and he climbs up the chimney. He wouldn't have been able to get into the chimney. No. And I think if it had been rusted and he had broken through it somehow, there would have been indications on that body. Yeah. And here's the other thing. The cap- the chimney had been built 20 years before. And that's, I'm pretty sure it was 20 years before his body was found. 
So at the time, it would have been 13 years. Yeah. Uh, a, it's That wouldn't have rested bad enough to... Well, you wouldn't think so. I mean, I would think those would be supposed to last a little while. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't. You aren't typically supposed to like maintain the chimneys that often. So, yeah, I would think that it would be a little bit better than that. But yeah, it it doesn't make it makes to me even before you mentioned the great part of it. Um, it it just makes more sense to be inserted from the inside of the house rather than the outside. Yeah, just because of the position that he was in. Uh, I agree. It, I mean, it stinks of foul play. It stinks yeah. of homicide, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Now, who did it? Who knows? But, I have no idea. Um, but one of, one of, uh, one of the... I, I think that the at least the cause of death should be better determined than it is. Well, and that's kind of what the issue is. If, uh, if, if a coroner puts on a report that the cause of death was... Um, uh, death by suicide um, or if they put in their accidental death they close those cases they do mm-hmm. not continue to look into them they're not allowed to continue to look into them right there's no reason to exactly so there's no longer an investigation into it and the longer and longer you wait to do an actual investigation the staler and staler the evidence gets for it. You have a ton of evidence in this case. You have eyewitnesses. So, yeah, that's my two cents. Anyway, um, even though he didn't suffocate, he was still in a chimney. And that's terrifying. And that's terrifying. Uh, and if you haven't, you're still able to give the description of how you die when you're in a chimney. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, it terrifies me and it gives me nightmares. And so I just want to give everybody a Halloween nightmare about suffocating to death in a chimney when you can actually draw in a breath, but your chest can't expand. So you suffocate. You're welcome. Okay. I did it a second time. All right. Well, that's the end of my story. Samantha, tell me a claustrophobic story. I'm sick of talking. All right. So mine is going to be... I. I researched for hours because I wanted to do one about a cave, um, about people getting in caves, getting stuck. There was actually a movie released on Amazon, I think, not too long ago that was about the 13 um, kids. I think it was a soccer group uh, from Thailand, I think it was, that got stuck in a cave they had somehow managed to go too far it it started raining earlier than normal and it flooded they couldn't get them out blah 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 so on that vein i was like there's tons of caves in alabama i guarantee people have been hurt there's been rescues people have died you'd be surprised how hard it is to find stories that actually give a lot of detail it was a lot of news articles of well so and so was trapped in a cave for 17 hours they were rescued in a story. And it's like, well, that's not very interesting. <laughs> but I did find one <laughs> that uh, I thought was interesting. It gave a lot of information. But again, it's not on the same vein. For me, the claustrophobia, as far as caves are concerned, I'm sure anybody that has this feeling would, would agree with me. 
you know, a thousand, two thousand feet underground, um, with a lot of mountain and rocks above your head and to your side. Some of those passageways are extremely tight. Um, some of these caves are actually underwater to some extent. So sometimes they have to bring, uh, scuba gear to be able to go through. So that's what got my heart rate going up. (laughs) Scuba diving is like the most terrifying thing ever. And when you scuba dive in like a cave, you have to have like super special equipment depending Mm -hmm. on like the depth and things like that. And if you're oxygen, you have to have like special mixes of oxygen. And if you don't, you die basically drunk. Yeah. Um, And you also have to be really careful about how you pace yourself um, when you're doing it, because if you panic, because a lot of times in caves, sometimes things come up like what happened with those 13, you know, they had some spaces where they literally had to take their gear off and push it in front of them to swim through these spaces because they were so small, they couldn't fit with their gear on. Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying in and of itself, because then you've got to hold on to it, because if you lose it, you may never find it again. Oh, and then at those depths too, if you have like the special mix of oxygen and you get even the slightest bit of water inside of your, uh, your mask, you're pretty much done. So, yeah. So, so on that vein, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about, uh, an instance that happened at Ellison's cave on February 12th, 2011. And just to go into a little bit of detail about Ellison's Cave, it's a popular spot for cavers as it offers quite a challenge. It's the deepest caving pit in the continental U.S., a 586-foot drop in the Fantastic Pit is what it's called. The cave is a part of Pigeon Mountain, and it's the right half of a V with Lookout Mountain in Tennessee and Georgia. Pigeon occupies about 20,000 acres and stands about 2,300 feet above sea level. The mountain, along with a host of other tunnels, pits, and holes in the sandstone, have given the tri-state area a reputation around the country as a caving mecca. Every year, 10,000 cavers come to the mountain. There are several cave entrances and no signs that help you as you approach. Once you enter, it would be extremely easy for an inexperienced caver to get lost. Between 1986 and 2008, there were reported incidents worldwide of 394 cavers falling, 162 being stranded or trapped, 169 being hit by fallen rocks, 100 getting lost, and 49 suffering from hypothermia. 75 cavers died during that stretch, according to the national... uh, I don't want to say that word because I did it in the cave one. Spelunking society whatever <laughs> i can't do that no well it's like spelunkio something cool society it's really hard to try say. it do it do it do it for me i did Spel- Spel- i have to say spelunking in my head first and it's like spelung I don't know. I can't. I can't wrap my tongue around the the letters that are coming together. It's like S P E L E O L O G I C A. Like what the heck? Spelunkiological. Spelunkiological. Logical. Yeah. Spelunkiological. Together we can do it. All right. It takes two to make a thing go. Oh wait, I don't want to be sued. Start. Start that. So that's the information about the mountain itself. It's actually very popular place to go 
So these college kids from the University of Florida, it was a group of 10 students. Three of them are the main people in this story. Grant Lockenbach, Carrie O'Neill, and Michael Peary, I think is how you say his last name. And they had come to the caves to explore them, though Grant was the only one that really had any real experience as a caver. Um, And he had only been caving for about three years, and he was also only 20 years old. While the other students were exploring at another part of the cave, Grant and Michael rigged up their ropes at the warm-up pit when one of their bags somehow fell below them. The bag had the ropes and other climbing gear in it, so Grant went down to get it. Only minutes later, the the group could no longer hear Grant, and were not sure if it was due to where he was, because there there was a waterfall, so it was making a lot of noise, or if there was something wrong. So, suspecting trouble, three of the students left to call 911, because the phone that the group had brought for the emergency situation was also in the bag that had fallen. So, they had to climb out of the cave, then go down the mountain to get to a phone to be able to call 911. Soon after, the remaining group began hearing Grant's screams. He was yelling for Peary mostly. They tried to yell back that they had gone to get help and that it would be there soon, but it seemed like he couldn't hear them because he just continued to scream that he needed help. That was when the group decided someone needed to go down to him to help. A girl in the group volunteered, but Peary decided he should go down instead, despite the fact that he may not have been very experienced himself since he apparently said, can you pray for me? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. Someone in the group remembered that he strapped on a white helmet and basically just fell down the pit instead of rappelling down. It seemed he was okay, though, since he yelled that they were both okay, but cold shortly after. By 3.30, which this was um, about a half an hour after Peary had gone down into the pit, He kept yelling up that they were okay and telling Grant that help was on the way, but panic was starting to set in and those listening could start to hear the panic in his voice. All of a sudden, Perry yelled Grant a few times, causing Grant's girlfriend Carrie to ask if Grant was okay. Perry responded, not sure if it was intentionally or if, you know, intentionally a misunderstanding or if he genuinely misunderstood what she was asking when he asked if Grant was okay. Or if he was just avoiding answering, but he just said, I'm fine, I'm fine. And when she asked again, he still didn't answer. He just answered a different question. Okay. That's weird. Yeah. I have a, a couple theories once we get to the end. The initial response task force of three men arrived around 358 and Carrie left with the other two women that had stayed in the cave. At this point, Carrie believed Grant was dead and she would never see him again. The first arrivals from the rescue team actually got there at 3.11, about an hour after the 911 call. Unfortunately, cave rescues require a much longer response time. For one, they're not always on the ready like police or fire department or even an EMT. In this situation, the regional supervisor was actually just at the mall when he was notified. And all of this information came from one site so i'll cite it but there's a lot of quotes in here because there's just no point in me trying to rephrase it but this is a quote directly from it and all the rescue team consisted of 34 members five from the department of natural resources six from walker county emergency services and 23 volunteers among the volunteers were seven members of the national cave rescue commission a group of experienced cavers from all parts of the country the commission just happened to be holding a meeting in lafayette that day 
which is where the mount the cave is is in Lafayette or Lafayette. Lafayette. I think it's Lafayette. Uh, once members of the team had assembled, they still had to march one mile against 850 feet of elevation. The initial response task force started the hike at 3.20. They reached the warm-up pit around 40 minutes later, and Anmar Mirza rappelled to where Lockenbach, which is Grant, and Peary were suspended about 80 feet down. When the responders called out to the two men, there was no response. The rest of the story... I'm just going to straight up quote from the article because there's a lot of detail and I didn't want to misspeak or misquote it because it's pretty detailed and specific uh, because it's very strange, uh, in my opinion, what they found. Okay. I'm here for strange. So, it's Halloween, baby. Well, it, it's kind of hard to visualize. So I'm going to try to go through it a little bit slow because I have a tendency to talk really quickly, but just a little bit. Uh, before before you get into it, um, I actually, as I was saying, it's Halloween, baby, reminded me, I'm going to derail us for a second. Oh, no. Uh, it ain't so. You and Paul looked fucking fire in your Halloween costumes. Like, oh, hands down. You. The cutest <laughs> shit I've ever seen. We're going to have to post it on uh. the pod page. So... <laughs> Get ready we for that, that, I guess. <laughs> Maybe may, I can do that on Halloween. It'll be a special, special post. Yeah, I'm here for it. Y'all look cute as okay. shit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so anyway. It was a lot of fun. You looked great. So We uh, went to a Halloween ball and dressed up in a couple's costume. But yeah, we'll post it. It was cute as hell. Uh, I'm not dressing up because obviously I'm in a basement with a bunch of shit around me. You can't even find a bowl for your soup. <laughs> I can't find a bowl for my soup. And I spent an hour looking for my coffee coffee pot and towel this morning and all I found were towels and I said well fuck it I'll just get coffee on the way to work <laughs> so my what life, you gotta do my life's going great anyways all right go into this story I'm ready to be spooked the fuck out and I don't know about it spooked but it's definitely very weird and it's I've never heard a situation like this when I was looking into like cave rescues or anything like that um, and actually, I didn't realize that this would be an issue. Peary was below um, Grant. His head was resting on his right shoulder and his helmet was hanging by a string. Peary's left arm was extended, a thick black rope wrapped around his wrist. That rope entangled with another, this one thin and green and attached to a store-bought harness, typically made of nylon webbing with three loops. A big one at the top for your waist and three smaller ones below for each leg. Grant had tied his own harness with a rope. And unlike Peary, he had a climbing system attached. To properly climb a rope long distances, you need an ascender device at least you need ascender devices at least attached at two locations on your body, such as your waist and your foot. Leaning on one of the ascenders, you pull yourself higher. Then you switch, putting all your weight on the ascender you just elevated. So if you've ever watched TV shows or movies, they'll usually have one close to their foot because they'll use that to push up with their legs, move the next one up, and then pull on the next ascent. So it's like you're kind of inchworming it up, but you're using the pieces to hold the rope for you. So you're holding on to like a metal device that's holding the place on the rope so wait let me that way you don't have to worry about slipping on the rope or cutting your hand let me get this straight one one man was 
um, it was one man, and then there was another man with his head on his shoulder. There was a harness that was not attached to them, and the um, the man with his head on the shoulder, his the other man's shoulder, Perry was holding onto the rope that was attached to another rope that was attached to the harness that was not on anyone. No, they were both wearing harnesses. Um, the harnesses were attached differently. Oh. To the rope. So, Peary had the harness attached. It says, yeah, it was. there was a thin green line attached to the harness that he was wearing. But that that I don't I don't think that rope was supposed to necessarily be for what they were using it for because some of their climbing equipment was in the bag that had fallen. So I don't think I think he ended up using the same line that the first person used when he went down. And that's part of the problem. I think they got tangled up. Oh, so like they lost their climbing equipment and they were just trying to some of it. Yeah, it seems like. Not that we know. It seems like they were trying to use somebody else's climbing equipment to get back up. Well, they so they had put their harnesses on. Because remember, they were in that first... Everybody else was just kind of hanging out in a different area. They had started putting their equipment on because they were going to practice in this pit. Because it's like a warming up pit. So it wasn't the main one. that This was not where they were going to be repelling, from what I understand. Okay. This was... it. This was something else where it fell down. So they weren't planning on going down this pit originally. But since Grant had more experience and they needed that equipment, he said, I'll just go down there and get it. But then something happened. So then Peary, who did not have the experience, went down. And it sounds like he used the same rope and somehow got them tangled up. Okay, so if they, so, they're not supposed to. But Perry wasn't using the correct ascenders. So Grant had two. He had the, it, that's it's called the climbing system. So you have the two ascenders that you use to mm-hmm. climb back up. Perry did not. He only had one. Okay, and Perry. And he had a piece of the rope wrapped around his wrist like he was trying to use that to pull himself up. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I understand a little bit better. So Perry. So he had part of the system, basically. He just didn't have it all set up the way he really should have, but that's probably due to his inexperience. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm caught back up. I was just like. Okay. It's very, like I said, it's hard to kind of picture it when you're reading it, but I know what that's supposed to look like and I can kind of get the gist of what was going on. Right. Um, so where was I? Oh, yeah. Um, On Grant's harness, one ascender was clipped to his black rope. But a second one was just hanging, attached to nothing. Now, this is when they found them. When the rescue team found them, Grant's mouth and nose were filled with water. His arms were stretched out. His face tilted towards the sky. Nobody knows exactly what happened to Grant during his descent. Some members of the rescue team think his rope was too short for the 125-foot drop. Others say the rope's length was fine, suggesting he was unable to maneuver once he became trapped in the waterfall. Water running down the pit came from the melting snow. Its temperature was in the high 30s or low 40s. Cavers are instructed to wear three layers of clothing in such conditions. 
Grant was wearing a blue Florida Gators t-shirt and Peary was wearing a black long sleeve shirt and khaki shorts. Go Gators. (laughs) Nobody said (laughs) that. No, nobody said that. (laughs) That's so weird. Wait, so, but, um, not Perry. Uh, what's the other one's name? Grant. Grant. Grant's the more experienced one. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think he would have more clothing on? You would think, because that's one thing that they're supposed to know to do is to wear sufficient clothing. Because apparently cold can be a problem when you're going into a cave that never gets above 60 degrees. And it's also February, so you've got melting snow. So any water in the cave is probably due to the melted snow. So it's going to be pretty dang cold. Yeah, and I mean... And at some points, they said in the that the other students, when they were just even walking through, they were almost waist deep in water at some points. So they were not prepared for this at all. Well, it sounds to me like while Grant may have been more experienced, he was not experienced enough. No. No, I mean, you can... You can be caving for three years, but that doesn't necessarily mean you actually know how to do these cave dives like this one would have required. And I I think he probably was prepared for what they were planning on doing. He overestimated his experience when he decided to go down to get that bag. I mean, they could have just left at that point. That's one of those situations where you look back and you're like... They had another option and they just didn't take it. Yeah. So when the rescue team found, uh, when the rescue team found Grant, he had been in the waterfall for more than two hours. Perry had been in it for about half as long, so about an hour. It's possible that one or both of them had experienced cold shock response. With their bodies engulfed in water of that temperature, they could have hyperventilated for up to three minutes. Both men would have eventually recovered, however at least until hypothermia set in. Your body temperature normally rests at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Hypothermia occurs when it dips below 95. In 40 degree weather, it can take effect in 10 to 20 minutes, but Grant and Peary weren't fully submerged, likely delaying the process. Once hypothermia does take place, the muscles grow weak and blood flows towards the core of your body away from your extremities and you lose coordination, which would make it very hard to climb back out of a pit um, while water's pouring down on you from melted snow. But, okay, so they did have water, cold water pouring down on them. Yeah, they had somehow managed to get caught in the waterfall when they okay when they went down into the pit. Because my thought was, if they're submerged up to what their knees, thighs, whatever they weren't submerged, but at that time they were hanging okay. on the rope. Um, well, I thought, okay, no. I and they were, no, no, the group of them had had to walk through okay, yeah, yeah. the water at some points to it, get to where they were. It just seems, I don't know, but if they're in a waterfall, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it, we're not talking like Niagara Falls waterfall. It's a waterfall from a cave. So it's not a, a lot, a lot of water, but it doesn't really take much i mean it's it's constantly that cold water that's the same temperature constantly hitting you over and over and over like it doesn't have a chance to warm up and i'll get into it later but the type of clothes they were wearing made a huge difference because it doesn't help you in any way shape or form to retain your body heat yeah and that's one reason why you wear three layers of clothing so at least your body can sort of try to regulate itself true that 
The heart and the nervous system and other organs stop functioning correctly and speech is slurred. Confusion sets in. Breathing becomes slow and shallow. Gradually you fade. Organs soon fail and it just becomes a matter of which one stops first, which one becomes the culprit. But well before any organ failed, well before the nearly ice-cold water overwhelmed Peary and Grant, they likely fell victim to suspension trauma. As you hang in a harness, blood builds to begins to build up in your legs. And I, it's, it's weird that I did this because Paul and I had a conversation about this not too long ago. If you can move around and shift your weight, the blood will continue to circulate. But when you become tired and stop moving, your circulation slows. Your brain, realizing it's not relieving the proper blood flow, sends your body into shock. Your pulse increases. You breathe, you breathe faster. You feel sick. You sweat. You shiver. You become anxious. And eventually you faint which only further complicates the issue because you're still hanging. So you're not moving. So you're losing circulation longer and longer. That just sounds like me before I give a presentation. <laughs> Honestly. I hope not. It's <laughs> <deadly. laughs> I sweat. I shake. I pass out. All, all, all of the same markers. Maybe not to the same extent. No, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Uh, but suspension trauma is a real thing. It's something that any experienced climber or diver, cave diver would know about. Um, again, I don't feel like he was experienced enough to really know what was going on. It's starting to sound to me like Grant wasn't experienced at all. And he might have been showboating. Very possible. Like He was also a part of, um, I forget what it was called. He was a part of a group that uh, did like parachute jumps from airplanes. So I think he really in it from all I could tell, he really liked doing things, especially out outdoors. Um, things that get your uh, adrenaline pumping, obviously. So I think he went into this pit and had no idea what it was or what he was jumping into. And I'm pretty sure any experienced caver will tell you that you don't do that. And if you do, you have certain things put in place just in case certain things happen. Mm -hmm. And he didn't do any of those things. So I'll, I, I would say almost all of this is an experience. It, it could have been avoided. Yeah, it, it seems like inexperience. Uh, I don't know. Is that victim blaming? No, I don't think so. I think it's important and I'll get into it at the bottom part of it, but that's something that cave rescuers say over and over and over again. This isn't something for you to be testing your skills doing. This isn't something to get an adrenaline rush. You don't do this because the rescue time takes so long for them to get to you and then for them to get you out of the cave and even if they can stabilize you while you're in the cave before they can take you out. Like there, this isn't something to play with. You really should be very, very experienced before you attempt anything that's remotely dangerous. And I feel like sometimes we all, when we were younger, we did things and we thought that we were invincible. We say that and people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially teenagers. But you don't really think about the true dangers of things because it's like, you know, we can call 911, they'll come get us. Or I'm prepared enough, but we're not because we've never been in that situation. We don't realize what we actually need. So I think it's it's not blaming them for what happened, but it is explaining this as this was an, a, a error in judgment 
that had a vastly high consequence yeah for two people okay i can see that uh it's it's something that should be learned from i think yeah i would agree and especially in those when it comes to like cave diving and stuff like that cave diving is probably one of the most dangerous things Mm -hmm. you could ever do i mean skydiving you're probably pretty good when it comes to skydiving i mean there's a very low percentage of death in skydiving because of all the regulations, all, all the people standing by and things like that. When you're cave diving, you don't have a team of people standing by. No, and the odds are against you. They're stacked against you. Yeah. At, at, from the onside. So, and you have to have a backup plan in place if you even get injured to an extent that it hampers your ability to maneuver. Let alone if there were some stories of people falling 20 feet and shattering their pelvis and they couldn't move and those are the rescues that typically take 10 15 30 hours to rescue them because it takes so long to get to them stabilize them and then get them out because then they have to reverse and go back up the way that you got in when you can't just go straight back up no and you have to be careful with the person too It's just, it's, don't do it unless you have somebody that's extremely experienced that can uh, be there in case something happens, I, I would say. That's the that's the biggest thing is most of the time when you see these and people are learning how to do it, they almost always have an extremely experienced guide that is there. So that way they can react appropriately in serious situations and they're more likely to prevent those situations from coming up in the first place because sometimes a lot of what ends up causing issues is the panic that sets in because you're so far underground you're sometimes miles away from the entrance and you're freaking out because now what am I going to do yeah it's Um, uh, suffocating it's claustrophobic (laughs) (laughs) and I mean if you're in that place where it's like I can't get out of here I can't save myself that's only going to compound that and make it that much worse so Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, when the rescue team found the bodies, they also found two lights shining, a headlamp on a nearby ledge and a mini mag light 40 feet below. So they had dropped their flashlights. Ellison's cave is 12 miles of twisting passages and plunges, including a 125 foot warm up pit where Grant and Peary died. The cave's 586-foot fantastic pit is thought to be the deepest pit in the continental U.S. I already referenced. For reference, it's 586 feet. It, 586 feet is 19 feet shorter than Seattle's Space Needle and 31 feet taller than the Washington Monument. This is not a place for new cavers, um, one of the rescue teams said. Even experienced cavers train extensively and visit several pits in the 200 to 300 foot range for practice before attempting Ellison's. And from what I could tell that of what he had done prior to this, it was nowhere close to that type of a fall. While Walker County Emergency Services responds to eight or 10 cave rescue calls a year, Fire Chief Randy Camp says most rope rescue calls are for people who are lost have not reported back in by a specific time or have suffered relatively minor injuries due to falling. 
Although last year's accident was not the first fatality at Ellison's cave, Camp says it may be the worst, partly because it was two people and partly because of the young age of the two men. This was definitely one of the worst cave accidents here in Walker County. In addition to the pits, the Ellison's cave is dangerous because of water, according to uh, the chairman of the Chattanooga Grotto. You notice that there's no surface streams on the side of the mountains. That's because they're all underground. The whole mechanics of a cave creation involves water. Temperature in the caves are normally around 55 degrees and the water may be even colder. Hypothermia is always one of those things in the back of my mind when caving. On trips where I know I will almost be constantly in water, I always make sure to keep those trips short. And wear three layers of clothing. So, basically, what they've done is they've used this this case as an example of what to not what not to do, what to look for, uh, you know, learn from this and and don't make the same mistake. So that's it. That's 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 the case. I couldn't end it on a happy note. Sorry, there's just not happy oh, note on this. A twenty year old and an eighteen year old died. Yeah, there's no uh, happy note when people die, especially when they're so young. Ugh, that's awful. So lesson, lessons learned here is, you know. Don't go outside. and <laughs> Don't go in a cave. <laughs> don't, don't go in a cave and don't go into a chimney. Now, I did have another story, but just to offset this a little bit, that inexperience is not always the reason why things happen. In 2011, um, a 51-year-old man from Huntsville fell 20 feet while cave diving and was about 2,000 feet underground when it happened, and he ended up breaking several bones. He's the one that I mentioned that shattered his pelvis and broke his arm in two places. The entire rescue ended up taking how long? 30 hours from the time he from the time he fell. He was 51 years old. He was extremely experienced and accidents still happen so that's what why i'm saying like the odds are against you the second you walk into a cave so yeah you really have to know what you're doing what podcast is it that says um fresh air is for dead people morbid yeah don't go outside (laughs) well it's not even fresh air in a cave (laughs) that's true i mean we've, we've been in a couple of caves but uh we were not, the, we were barely outside of the entrance. <laughs> yeah. We were not like cave diving. We were not cave climbing. None of that stuff. Neither one of us are adventurous enough for that. I don't think. No, no. I'll give me a good hike. I will go for a hike. Yeah. I'm here for it all day long. Um, I might camp. Probably not. It's beyond probably me. Not. Um, so basically what you're saying, we'll walk around outside, but we're not going inside the hills and mountains no 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 that's for another set of people so for a different uh set of people never gonna go cave diving never gonna go actual diving uh never gonna go cave water diving never gonna dive just i'm just don't dive i will say i've been to ruby falls so that's i don't even remember i had it pulled up at some point it's really far underground and you know how you duck your head when you're in parking garages <laughs> when you're driving through like it's going to help your car for some reason, but you kind of duck. I found myself doing that the whole time I was going on that tour because it was so the the space was so tight and it showed areas where when they first originally discovered it, how small those spaces were. 
and you're talking uh six seven inches in some of those places like the 51 year old that took 30 hours there was a crawl space that was eight inches high and 14 inches wide i wouldn't even that they had to fit get through that. yeah they ended up having to blast it open because they couldn't fit him through once they once they uh got him secure so ugh, just the thought of going into a cave and then i could not wait to get out of that tour because it takes so long to get there because you go so far down and then it takes so long to go back up. And you're just like, if I died down here, I would never get out. The amount of Ativan I would have to assume to even walk through the entrance of something like that. And I will not say that I have claustrophobia, but that makes me scared. Like that tide of a space and that far underground, it just terrifies me. I think I do have claustrophobia. We might have to test it out at some point. Okay. You were way too happy about answering that. <laughs> anyway. Um, good job. Good job, me. Good job, you. Good job, listeners. Um, uh, happy Halloween. Our spooky explosion Halloween. is over, but we are in the works of probably doing a Patreon at some point. Maybe. If we can ever sit down and talk. Yeah. Um. And so we will continue, uh, if we end up doing a Patreon, we will continue to release an extra episode or two a week if we go down that road. Still in the works, just letting you know that if that comes about, you can expect at least one other episode a week like that. Um, Sam, where can our beautiful, wonderful, amazing listeners find us on our social medias? That's Instagram and Facebook. Hey, you can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast. You can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. Uh, if you do, it's probably going to be me who responds. So you're welcome. You Get ready. <laughs> get ready. None of it's going to be coherent. Um, yeah. <laughs> Be sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe. All the things. On all the things. Just do all the things. Say say wonderfully glowing things on our streaming platforms for us, please. Uh, I'd appreciate that. Totes. Anyway, uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here, friends. Uh, Hope y'all had a good October. I hope you, yeah, hope you had a good spooky season, and I hope our podcast helped you have an even spookier one. Until next time. The Reaper will come for us all.